you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Jerry's got some in the back. There are some on the front platform. We want you to read with us as we'll cover chapter 1, maybe going to chapter 2 of Song of Solomon. We'll see how far the Lord gets us tonight. As you're turning there, a couple quick announcements taking place. Kind of a holiday weekend coming up. We will be here Sunday, uh, 8, 9.30, and 11 o'clock, three Sunday morning services. And we're going to be continuing in Luke's gospel and we're going to actually see that Jesus makes that ascent from Jericho up to Jerusalem and what is called his triumphal entry. It's kind of interesting that um, it's always been called the triumphal entry of Jesus. Really, his triumphal entry is in Revelation chapter 19 when he comes back and we come back with him. But in that triumphal entry, what's called Palm Sunday, we're going to look at um, uh, that event that you're very familiar with. But I think there's some very important implications there for us to consider as we make application for our own lives. And as we set the scene that Jesus already has a, a great multitude, as Mark Gospel says, that is with him there in the Jordan Valley as they're a thousand feet below sea level, the lowest place on the face of the earth. And they're going to go 20 miles singing the songs of ascent that is in Psalms 120 through 134. Great excitement. We've already read in chapter 19 that the people are expecting Jesus to usher in the kingdom immediately. So they're thinking that there's going to be great power and glory that's going to be displayed and angelic host is going to come and, and Jesus is going to throw off the Roman yoke. And as we see, as he makes his entry into Jerusalem, there is, as Matthew's gospel tells us, the city was moved. It's a, a Greek word seismic where we get um, our Greek word uh, seismic or our English word uh, seismos is the Greek and then our English word seismic in other words it was it, they were moved it was like an earthquake and of course the city would swell at that time during Passover to a population of what they believe historians two million people there in the city of Jerusalem so you got this great multitude that are following him and then they came out to met him uh, as he's coming into the city, people that are already there, and there's great excitement, and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was the first time that Jesus accepted public worship at that time. And he also mentions, as the religious leaders are saying, tell your disciples to be quiet. And he said that if they are quiet, the very rocks are going to cry out. And he would also, as we see that here is the crowds that are cheering, the Romans are probably chuckling. They're thinking, this is your Messiah. This is your deliverer. Riding, you know, on a donkey. Uh, on the full of a co uh, colt, you know, probably on a baby donkey and the mother in front. And they would be thinking, this isn't, you know, very grand. Because a conqueror would be one riding on a white stallion with an army behind him. So here are the crowds that are cheering. The, the Romans are probably chuckling. The, the religious leaders are upset, and they're saying, be quiet, and we're going to see that Jesus is weeping. And he's going to be weeping because he knows in a few short days that the crowds is going to be crying out, crucify him, and we will not have this man rule over us. So there's some really important uh, prophetic implications that we need to look at. Uh, some very important personal application for us to consider as well. Nobody's getting it on the triumphal entry. The Romans don't get it. The, the religious leaders, the disciples, the crowds yelling. The only one that got it was the donkey, you know. <laughs> really, 
so we're going to learn from the donkey on Sunday, but you got to come, all right? And we're going to see that there's some important lessons for us in that. So come out and join us on that. And then we see that Jesus cleanses the temple. So there's going to be two parts to finishing uh, the last part of chapter 19 of Luke's gospel. A couple things coming up. A week from today, we won't be here. We're, we're going to um, just kind of uh, take that Wednesday off for the 4th of July holiday. And staff's going to get a little break. And so we'll be back in two weeks continuing through the Song of Solomon. And um, so want to remind you of that. Um, and we'll be checking messages. So we'll be kind of in and out. I'll be doing some work and things like that as well, getting ready for the next Sunday. And then uh, first Friday, young married couples, um, you will be meeting on July the 14th. And I don't want the young adults to forget. Young adults, July 15th, Saturday, is the conference, one-day conference from uh, 10 o'clock till 2.30. Doors open up at 9.30, $10 for lunch. It's going to be a catered lunch. So if you can register at the info desk or on our website, calvarychapelgreeley.com, and I know that you'll be tremendously blessed. So that's some of the things that we got coming up. But we do want to get into our Bible study. And, Father, we ask that you bless this time as we study your word, uh, as we start a new book. And, Lord, I do pray that um, this poetic book as we go over to poetic language and, and look at this, that um, this is you speaking to us because all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable. So Lord, it's a blessing for us to be here tonight. And may our hearts be just touched and lifted up and encouraged as we go through this song, the song of songs. And so Lord, we commit this time to you, for you to teach us and speak to our hearts through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So we see that the Song of Solomon is the fifth of the poetic books. A good way to, to outline the Old Testament that's, that's fairly easy is the first five books, of course, or the books of Moses, Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then from the book of Joshua, it starts the historical section of the Old Testament, the historical books, of course, Joshua taking the children of Israel into the promised land and they would receive their allotments and then the book of Judges were 400 years of uh, in rebellion against God and being in bondage to the enemy and then God would raise up a deliverer then you go through those historical books of first and second Samuel and first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles and you see that they asked for a king and Saul was the first king and then you know uh, God would reject him and David uh, would end up becoming king and all those stories that are recorded for us, David having a heart after God, and he would reunite the kingdom, and he uh, would uh, defeat his enemies all around. So then you go into First and Second Kings, and Solomon, who is the human instrument that writes this book, would reign during the time that Israel was experiencing its greatest power and prosperity, as, as you know. And as uh, we, you continue through the historical books, of course, that after Solomon dies, 40 years of reigning in Jerusalem, that his son Rehoboam comes to the throne, and shortly after he comes to the throne, that the ten northern tribes break away from Judah and Benjamin, and there's a house of Israel, 
and the house of Judah to the south. And you go through all those chapters of First and Second Kings of the different kings in, in Israel, 19 kings, all idol worshipers, and then the kings of, of Judah. And you have First and Second Chronicles that talks about the kings of Judah until the house of Israel is taken off into captivity in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. And then in 605 B.C., the Babylonians would come and take away Judah t into captivity. And that captivity would be 70 years, as you know. And then you have the historical books of Ezra, um, Ezra Nehemiah, and Esther that finished the historical books and those are written after they return to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, Nehemiah. Then you have what is called the poetic books and five books, Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes that we finished last week and then the Song of Solomon. And Solomon would be the one writing Proverbs and writing Ecclesiastes in the Song of Solomon. He probably would write Proverbs it is believed by historians and by uh, scholars and rabbinical scholars uh, sometime uh, after he had, uh, you know, built the temple and he was known as the wisest man on the face of the earth. So sometime in the middle of his reign and in Ecclesiastes that we looked at last time, which was an important book for us to study because Solomon is really bummed out. He's negative. He says everything is vanity, even though he had it all. He's probably writing that at the end of his life. He gets to the end of his life. He had done all that he desired in building the temple and building his own palace. And he pursued things, all the wives and the power and prosperity and riches and, you know, everything that he ever wanted, he had. Anything he set his eyes on, he received, he, he, he got and yet, he says it's all vanity. And the important lesson, even though it was kind of difficult to teach through it and sometimes to, to see how he's bummed out and negative and life's routine and, and all of this, it was so important for us to understand that as we go through life and journey through life, that if we are doing anything apart from Christ, that we're going to have a cynical attitude. We're going to be uh, saying that it's vanity, nothing's new, life is boring, it's mundane. And that's why you see a lot of people at the end of their lives that they will get cynical in that way. It's important for us, as he says, here's the conclusion of the whole matter at the end of the book, that you fear God and keep his commandments. And I like to, to say what you are to do is stay close to the Lord and let him reign supremely in every area of your life. And once again, to remind you that Jesus isn't just a part of our lives as Christians. He is to be your life. He is to be the one that reigns supremely in your heart and in everything that you do. And as he said, I come to give you life and life abundantly that he desires for you to experience the joy and the peace and to walk in that wisdom. And, and we're going to see that even as Solomon here in this poetic song that he, he writes, he writes about, you know, going away with his Shulamite, you know, maiden and, and on this adventure. Being a Christian is an adventure. It isn't boring. It isn't mundane. You want to have an exciting life? Live for the Lord and especially you who are young, that there will be those who will come along and try to cheat you in saying that if you live for the Lord, you're just going to be religious and it's restrictive and limitations and all of this. No, living for the world is what's going to be restrictive and hold you in bondage and it's going to limit you. 
live for the Lord. And you will see that it's a great adventure for any of us at any stage of our life. And so now the Song of Solomon that we see finishing up the, the poetic books and then we'll go into the prophetic books starting with Isaiah that takes you to the end of the Old Testament. But this is, um, I remember the first time that I taught through the book of Solomon that I thought, man, this is one of the hardest books to teach because there's no theology here. There's no doctrine that is established. There's no mention of God. And, and when I first started teaching, when you do through the books of the Bible, it's kind of a scary thing. And, and you're trying to be, you know, uh, informative. It's a lot of academics. And you're trying to figure all of this out. But one of the things that I have found over the years and just my devotions and just reading the scriptures that I have enjoyed the Song of Solomon more now than I ever did in the past. And I can understand why the great Bible teachers such as Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers in the 1800s, and D.L. Moody, they will tell you that as they have written that one of their favorite books or their favorite book of the Bible is the Song of Solomon. Because it just speaks of that intimacy and closeness that uh, as we're going to see and talk about that God desires to have with us. So as we go through this book, it's been uh, revered, even though it doesn't mention God specifically, even though there's no theology or doctrine. It's been revered throughout Jewish history by, you know, Jewish rabbis. Um, it has been revered in the church the last 2,000 years. And because as we go through it, the poetic language and imagery, there is sometimes debate, sometimes different thoughts in the context. And as there is, you know, the poetic language that is used here, you usually go through, like you go through the book of Romans, you, you go through it and there's doctrine, there's theology that is there, very important. And you keep everything in the context and then you give the implication and the application for our lives. Because this is a song, this is like a drama that is being played out. It's like an opera, it's like a story as it talks about intimacy and it talks about romance that there is uh, Bible teachers and commentators and scholars that, that will have different views of what the intent of the book is to be all about. There are those who will come along and say, well, the book only talks about the relationship between a man and a woman as they become husband and wife and intimately. And there are those that will write on that, you know, they, they make it to where it's so you know, intimate and things like that and relationship between a husband and wife, it, it, it goes so far that it actually ends up becoming carnal and it ruins the beauty of what I believe that the Lord really desires to show us going through this book. And as we go through this book, we're going to see that it is a love story. We know that there's three main speakers. There is the bride, the Shulamite woman, there is the king, which is Solomon, and then the chorus, the daughters of Jerusalem. And there's some other speakers that are there, like the brothers of the Shulamite. They will be speaking a very small part. But those are the three main characters that you have in this book. So we got to kind of put on our thinking caps a little bit and remember who it is that is speaking and the message that they are given. But as we look at this, I think in the forefront, more than anything, in the way that I desire to teach it, is that it does show us that how the Lord cares for us and how he loves us. And, you know, ancient rabbis would uh, take it and they would teach on how, you know, this is uh, a symbol, it points to, it's a picture of Jehovah God, that his love for Israel, his people. 
And as we know that it's in the Old Testament that as the children of Israel were coming out into the wilderness that the Lord said that you're my own special people, a treasure unto me. And he said, you know, that you're a special treasure not because you're mighty, not because you're great in number, you're a stiff-necked people. It's because I've chosen to love you. And so he speaks about that in the book of Deuteronomy and throughout you see God's love and how you know it was Israel as you read the books of the prophets that would come that said you committed spiritual adultery and harlotry and and all of this so it's a picture of that and we'll talk about that and also I believe that you and I for today that we can make some application and implication and uh, the intent is to show us how Christ loves us the church and it is Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 that would say that, you know, as he's talking about the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives, that I tell you a mystery that, you know, our marriage relationship, you know, between a husband and a wife should be a picture as Christians of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And so that's sort of the things that we're going to look at and we are going to talk about because we can make application for a married couple, how you are to you know, talk to each other and respect each other and how valuable you are to each other. So we'll make those applications as well. So you have this, this play, you have this, this story uh, of intimacy and romance and closeness and all that they go through. Uh, and the Shulamite, uh, there's all this debate of who the Shulamite is. And it's interesting because I was just reading before I came down that there are some that believe that perhaps that the Shulamite, as you read, I'll read it to you, the book of 1 Kings, when David is about ready to die and in uh, verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Kings, so they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all, all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. Now here's the, the you know, where you can write a, a thesis on if you wanted to. Is the Shulamite the same as a Shulamite? And if you get it figured out, will you please let me know? Because, again, this has been talked about throughout the centuries that they believe that this, you know, Shunammite, and you might recall that in 2 Kings chapter 4, I believe, that it was Elijah that ministered to a, a Shum, Shul, Shulamite woman and was able to minister to her. So it was in that area where Mount Gilboa is in the heart of the country, in the middle of the country where the Samaritan Mountains are. Mount Gilboa, Gilboa, of course, was where Saul was killed and his son Jonathan on that mountain by the Philistines. So, you know, they say that, um, that, that Shulamite is the same as a Shunammite. And perhaps this young woman here that she was very lovely, she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. As David is older, he, he's about ready to pass away. He's cold, he can't get warm. So they find this, this Shunammite woman, young lady to come who hadn't known anyone intimately, didn't know David intimately, to come and serve David and, and to help keep him warm. So you have that story and there are those who suggest that perhaps this one is the Shulamite that Solomon is writing about. Because when you go into 1 Kings chapter 2, we know that Abinijah, who was uh, David's son, 
he would assume that he was going to be the king. David had a number of sons, and so he begins to, you know, put himself into a position where I'm going to take over the throne of my father David. And Bathsheba goes to David and says, hey, Abinijah, he's wanting to be king. You need to, to make that decision. Let it be known that Solomon is going to be the king. So that's what happens. And then when that does happen in chapter 2, what we see is that Abinijah comes to Bathsheba and says, hey, I know that your son Solomon is going to be the king. I just ask one thing, if I can have the Shunammite lady that was taking care of my father David and you would give her to me and Solomon would give her to me as my wife and when Solomon heard that he was ticked off and he killed his brother he said why don't he just ask for the kingdom so there are those who think as you look at it culturally it, that that really she belonged to Solomon and it was him trying to usurp the throne away from him you can go into all of that but it's believed that perhaps that Solomon that he had a love for her, never revealed himself to her. And when she was done serving David after the de death of David, she would go back home. And then Solomon, being young, would go and pursue her and go and search for her. And this is his first love. So it is believed that he's writing this at the beginning of his life. He wrote 1,005 songs according to 1 Kings chapter 4, and this is the Song of Songs. And he would fall in love with her and take her as his wife before he would take another thousand wives and concubines in his life. So that could be, we don't know for sure, but it's just a thought and some of the uh, thinkings of the ancient rabbis and, and um, modern scholars even today. The Shulamite was from Ephraim up in that area. She meets a young shepherd uh, who is really King Solomon in disguise and they fall in love and a shepherd had to leave his love but promised to return and he would return in grandeur and as the king and she realizes that the shepherd was the king of israel and solomon takes her back to be in his palace great love story right so the song you know records their intimacy their their joy that they have seeing each other their pleasures and even the difficulties that they face. So I think that we can learn from this letter as we go into it. And again, as we begin this song, uh, the Song of Solomon, uh, which the Songs of Songs, which is Solomon's, and then the Shulamite is speaking, that let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore the virgins love you, draw me away. So... Here is the Shulamite as she is speaking here. And in this opening phrase of this, this opera, this story, uh, she says, let him kiss me um, with kisses of his mouth. And as we look at perhaps in the New Testament, it reminded me, you, you recall in Luke chapter 15, that when the prodigal son, the lost son, came back to his father, that his father went and kissed him on the neck. And, and that speaks of, of course, uh, of forgiveness and restoration. But kisses on the mouth speaks of intimacy and closeness. And she is given a picture here that she desires that. She desires that closeness, as we're going to see, that uh, is going to be the Shulamite that is going to continue to speak to her, you know, beloved. And she desires for there to be that closeness and intimacy. And you see, right off the bat, we can see that you and I, that 
the Bible tells us that we are to be, you know, have that closeness with the Lord. You know, I hope that we understand as Christians that Christianity just isn't a bunch about a bunch of religion and rules and regulations and, you know, all of this. It's about relationship with the Lord. And the Lord desires more than anything for us to have closeness with Him, to grow in that relationship, to experience the goodness of His forgiveness and, and keep bringing us salvation for us to grow in that intimacy and closeness with him as we seek him, as we pursue him. And here she, she says, the daughters of Jerusalem now speak in this course, we will run after you. You know, in other words, we're going to pursue you. And that's what the Lord desires, listen, for all of us to pursue him, right? Not to pursue the world and not to pursue idols. And the Lord did not save us and, and now we have relationship with him so we can pursue other things above him. To pursue the pleasures of the world and the things of the world. You know, to pursue other things that become an idol in our lives. And again, as I've already mentioned, that he is our life. He is our priority in every area of our lives. So here, the daughters of Jerusalem, we will run after you. And then the Shulamite, the king has brought me into his chambers. And as we look at that, we are brought into his presence, even as Hebrews chapter 10 declares that we can come boldly into the throne of God, into the holy of holies because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can do it with confidence. We can come into the presence of our Father because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we can do it with confidence. And to understand once again that when those Hebrew readers were reading that in Hebrews chapter 10, they were absolutely amazed because the book of Hebrews is teaching us that Jesus is superior. He was superior, you know, sacrifice and, and provision for us to have relationship with the Lord. He provided, he was a sacrifice once and for all. The, the blood of goats and bulls could not do that. But as the author of Hebrews is building that up and telling us that Jesus comes from a superior priesthood and ministers in the heavenly tabernacle and the old covenant had to be replaced with the new covenant because it wasn't enough. And Jesus became the sacrifice once and for all. And because of that, now we can come into the Holy of Holies where the tangible presence of God was with confidence. And those Hebrew readers would be thinking, wow, how amazing. Because you see, they would think back to where in the Old Testament, that was the weakness of the Old Testament. It did not bring the people in the presence of God. Only the high priest was allowed once a year on the Day of Atonement for a short time after elaborate washings and cleansings to go into the Holy of Holies, to go behind that veil, to present the blood as a sacrifice for himself and then for the nation. And he did it for a short time. It was an awesome thing to think about that, that the high priest gets to do that once a year. But he was it. The other priest didn't get to do it. The other people, the children of Israel, didn't get to do it at all. And now, all of a sudden, even as Jesus, Matthew records, that when he cried out from the cross, it is finished, that it tells us that the veil in the temple rent in two that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And what God was declaring as Jesus said, I've done the work now. I have made it possible for forgiveness and for you to come into right relationship with the Father. He was declaring open house. 
that now you can come into the presence of the Father and to the Holy of Holies, not just once a year, not just for a short time, but we can come in confidence because of what He has done and because we've surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, that we can do it any day that we want, stay as long as we want, and we can do it as many times as we want. What a marvelous and glorious privilege and opportunity that we have. And what my prayer and hope for all of us here at Calvary Chapel is that every day you would see it as just, wow, glorious to be able to, to talk with the Lord and come into His presence, to pursue Him, to make Him the priority of my life, to have that closeness and intimacy. And you see, I think right off the bat, we see that that's what the Song of Solomon is showing us. Uh, the king has brought me into his chambers, and then the daughters of Jerusalem, you will be glad and rejoice in you. We should rejoice in that. Sometimes over, you know, a period of years or over time, uh, we, it starts to lose its grandeur and, and, and how much, you know, how glorious it is to think about what we just talked about, being able to come into the presence of the Lord. And I pray it doesn't. That, that it would just, you know, touch our hearts in a deeper way as we continue to grow in our relationship with the Lord. You will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Always remember the love of God for you. And that's what the Shulamite is going to learn. Sometimes we can feel like, Lord, do you even care about me? Do you love me? And whenever you doubt the love of Jesus Christ for you, look to the cross. And even as Romans chapter 5 declares that he demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And sometimes I can think I'm just one of billions of people on this planet, you know, the, or the Lord just kind of puts up with me. But he loves me and he loves you. And that was the reason why he came, for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross, despised the shame. And the joy that was set before him, even as we've seen in Luke's gospel, that he set his face to go to Jerusalem in chapter 9, verse 51. And then this Sunday we see he comes into Jerusalem and the people are cheering and they got great expectation of, you know, the Messiah, of who he is to be. That was not quite right at all. Oh, he's going to come back and he's going to usher in the kingdom, but he came to die. Because there was a greater bondage to them, and that was Rome, you know, that, that had them in bondage, but a greater bondage was sin. It was greater than any bondage that Rome could put on any of us. That he came to free them from sin. And Jesus, as he took that cross, he walked down the Via Della Rosa, the way of sorrows, and out the Damascus Gate to that place of execution that was called Golgotha in the Hebrew tongue, the place of the skull. The Mount Calvary was an awful place that smelled of death. And as he went, I am thoroughly convinced it was you that he was thinking about. It was you that was on his heart and on his mind. And he went to that cross because he wants you to have closeness and relationship with him and the Father and to be with them for all eternity and never doubt that if you doubt the love of God, look to the cross. And he demonstrated and proved his love for you that while we're yet sinners, not when I was at my best, 
God didn't look down and say, Jeff, you're so cool, I think I'll save you. Or you're so together. Not at all. When I was at my worst, he proved his love, and he proved his love to you. And if he loved you then, he loves you now. And he desires to have closeness and intimacy with you. And as you do and pursue that and make that the priority of your life, because it's the most important thing for us is to know him and to grow in our love for him is more important than serving him. We've been talking a lot about serving him in the parables of the mina and the parable of, you know, the the uh, unjust steward and being good stewards of what God has given to us. And those are very important lessons. But listen, Paul said it's the love of Christ that motivates me, that constrains me. And as we are living for him and serving him out of love, we will do more in love than we ever could do in gritting our teeth and thinking, I've got to do this. There's a big difference between I've got to do this and I get to do this. Because I have a love for my Lord and I want to see the kingdom of God being advanced. I, I want to invest in the kingdom of God. There's a big difference between I have to do this and I get to do this. Because I love you, Lord, and I'm going to live for you. So here she's pursuing him and talking about that. And then the Shulamite, uh, rightly do they love you. In verse 5, I am dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar and like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons are, were angry with me they made me the keeper of the vineyards but my own vineyard i have not kept kind of interesting here this is a time prior to her meeting the king the shulamite uh, woman here um, young maiden she's speaking of her mother and her brothers maybe stepbrothers no no mention of a father she's caring for a vineyard and she's caring for her brother's vineyards as well and she's a shepherdess and she encounters you know this this handsome stranger as we're going to see, and she's embarrassed. She's embarrassed because I, I don't look my best. I've been working out in the vineyard, and, you know, I've been out in the sun, and I'm tanned, and my skin is, you know, tanned, and um, it's kind of, you know, um, she doesn't look beautiful, and she doesn't see herself as being beautiful. Kind of like, it's almost like a Cinderella story, isn't it? Cinderella that was there serving their stepsisters and all of this. And, but yet we're going to see that the king is going to come and he's going to see her as being very beautiful. I don't know about you, but there are times I, I look in the mirror and I think, Lord, you just must be so disappointed with me because I'm not what I could be and I'm not what I should be. And I fall so short in being the pastor you want me to be or being the father or the husband you want me to be, the man of God that you want me to be. And I think that, Lord, you got millions and billions of people that you must see as so more important. And, and you know, you go through those feelings. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. And I got to remember that even in my shortcomings, and even as I journey through life, he sees us as very valuable and he never tires of us. And he sees us as being beautiful. And as she says to her beloved in verse 7, tell me, O, o you whom I love, where you feed your flock and where you make it rest at noon, 
Or why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? So she wants to seek him, to be with him. She's desiring him. And the thing is that sometimes we think that because I fall short, Lord, or because, you know, I haven't earned it and I'm not worthy of it, that I can't seek you. Listen, the Lord desires for you to seek him. And if there are things in our lives that we're pursuing that we need to repent of, we need to repent of those things. But we go to him. And as I've already mentioned several times as we've gone through the Gospels, that the message of Jesus has always come. It is not get away, you disgust me. It is not go away. But it is always to come. And he says to you tonight, come. I want to have closeness. I want to speak to your heart. Yes, he desires for us to turn away from those things that are keeping us from that closeness with him because, you see, that's what carnality and sin does. It just, it just hurts that closeness and fellowship with him. We still have relationship with him, but it hurts that closeness. And he says, turn away from that. Come to me. Because I desire to, to minister to you, to work in your life, spend time with you he always says come and then in verse 8 to be loved if you do not know fairest among women follow the in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents i have compared you my love to my filly among pharaoh's chariots your cheeks are lovely with ornaments your neck with chains of gold and so he welcomes her presence and companionship follow the footsteps of the flock and you will find me Interesting, in both the Old and New Testament, we, we were even um, looking at it, uh, with, I was with somebody this week, how God is called the Good Shepherd. In, in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 3, verse 15, as I mentioned, I think, last week, that he desires to raise up shepherds with a heart after me to feed you with knowledge and with understanding. And that's my prayer as a pastor, that first of all, that I have a heart for God and to feed you with knowledge and with understanding. And he goes and he dies those shepherds of, of Judah, of Israel, that they were not good shepherds at all and they weren't feeding the people. And, and Ezekiel talks about that, that God is our shepherd, the good shepherd. And of course, Jesus comes along and says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And the sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So stay close to the shepherd. Be with the shepherd, but also just a little application for us as we see here that feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tent. In other words, be with the shepherd, but also be with the sheep. It is important for you and I to be with the flock. In other words, to be with the other sheep, even as after the author of Hebrew writes that we can come boldly into his presence with confidence into the Holy of Holies because of what Jesus Christ has done. And right after that, he writes, don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together, together, as is the manner of some, especially as you see the day approaching. The commandment given to us is that we're to be in fellowship with one another. And there is benefit and blessing as we are being a part of the body of Christ. There should be no lone sheep out there. And if there is a lone sheep out there, it's a lot enemy, a lot easier for the enemy to come and pick you off, to beat you up. You know, he's looking to isolate you. 
So it's important that we continue to stay connected in the body of Christ to be with the other sheep. So follow the shepherd. Be with the sheep. Here as we see, uh, Solomon says, you are most fairest, very valuable and beautiful to me. And then in verse 11, the daughters of Jerusalem, this chorus, we will make you ornaments of gold and studs of silver. Uh, the daughters of Jerusalem respond to the example of Solomon, the beloved. He respected and honored um, the Shulamite maiden. And we need to respect one another as well. And also, as we make application for our own marriages, that husbands and wives, we are to respect each other. It is interesting, when you look at the roles and responsibility of husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5, as you look at it in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, as you look at it in Colossians as well, that it's interesting that you as a husband are told you're to love your wife as Christ loves the church. And gave himself for her. So that means, husbands, that you are to cherish your wife you are to serve her. You are willing to lay down your life for her. The Lord loves us unconditionally, supremely, infinitely. And that is the way that you are to love your wife and to ask God for help. What is interesting to me that it never says that the wife is to love the husband. It does say that the wife is to respect her husband. Now I think it, that is given that the wife is to love her husband. But we are to respect one another. And even as husbands, you are to live with your wife in an understanding way. And a short comment on that is you respect her. The things that are important to her need to be important to you. You live with your wife in an understanding way. You listen to her and you respect her and you love her. And this is what the, the beloved is saying. This is what the course of uh, is saying, that this is going to take place, that, that, that you are important to me. I'm going to respect you and cherish you. Gold is a metal of perfection, you know, royalty. And silver here in, in verse 11 is of redemption. And our King, Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, has redeemed us. And he laid down his life for us. And he loves us supremely and infinitely, perfectly, because he is love. And the Shulamite, in verse 12, uh, while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth this fragrance, a bundle of myrrh in my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of En Gedi. So she wants to be a sweet smell and fragrance to her beloved. What about us? Even as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that we are to be the fragrance of Christ, that fragrance unto life. What is it the fragrance of that is is we have the love of Jesus Christ that it gives a fragrance out to others. We talk a lot about the countenance that we're to have of Christ, the fragrance of Christ. So what do you smell like? I mean, I'm not talking about when you've been working out in the garden or did a workout, and I'm talking about your spiritual life. Are you a sweet-smelling aroma to others because you have the fragrance of Christ that is radiating? Matter of fact, I was kind of looking at this. It reminded me because the, the Sabbath, Jesus comes in on Sunday, right, from, from Bethany, uh, 
Bethpage. He, he makes his way. But he had been in Bethany the Sabbath before the Sunday he writes into Jerusalem. And on that Sabbath day, there's Mary that had that box of costly, you know, ointment that she breaks and she anoints Jesus for his burial. And it says, John's Gospel, that it filled the house with the fragrance, with the smell of the, the expensive ointment. What kind of fragrance do you give off in your home and at the workplace and when you're with others? The fragrance of Christ being a sweet smell and aroma to the Lord and to others as well. And then Paul writes about, or you can give a fragrance that is unto death. You know, we as Christians, we don't walk around thinking life just stinks, you know. And, and just being negative and down and like what we saw with Solomon and Ecclesiastes. And I know we all get down. I get bummed out too. I get that. But I want to be a sweet smell and aroma to others in my life and give the fragrance of Christ to others and to be able to be a blessing in that way. So here she's talking about that. And then verse 15, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. The poetic language. You know, guys, you can write some of these things down and compliment your wife. And <laughs> when she gets up in the morning, you can say, you have dove eyes. And You're important to me like a filly among Pharaoh's chariots, you know. <laughs> Be very poetic. Go and feed the little goats. The little ones are up. You need to go feed them. They're hungry. <laughs> But these are compliments in, the, in these days that we think and think, you know, dove's eyes, what's that all about? Well, that was a compliment. And verse 16, behold, you are handsome, the Shulamite, my beloved, yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. As we close here tonight, I think two things that it speaks to me about, and that is of rest and provision. She is fed at his table, verse 12, as we read. And finds rest in his house, verse 16 and 17. You know, Jesus said on that hillside in Galilee, as he was speaking to the multitudes, he cried out, If any of you are weary, come to me, and you will find what? Rest. And maybe you're here tonight, and you're weary and overburdened, Maybe you're feeling the pressures of life and that can come in so many different ways. Maybe your health, maybe relationships, maybe financially, whatever the case may be. And life can wear on us and it becomes overbearing. And the Lord says, come to me, all of you who are weary and overladen, and I will give you rest. Come learn of me, for I'm lowly, and he goes on and he says, as you do come to me, you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And maybe tonight, as you come to him, maybe you've been thinking, Lord, you don't want me to come. It seems like I'm always coming or I'm not worthy to come. He says, come, come to me. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these reminders as we read this, this love story, how you love us and how you care for us. And Father, I thank you that we can read it and and Lord, for me, it stirs my heart to remember how much you care for us. We are valuable to you.
Matter of fact, you loved us so much that you sent your son to die on Calvary's cross for every single person in this room. And I pray if there's anyone here, listen, if you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, I want to say this, that he is your salvation. He came to this world, as the Bible says, because there was a problem, and that is sin. And the wages of sin is death. And Jesus came to take care of the sin problem. That's why he went to the cross. And he would cry out from the cross, it is finished. I've completed the work. I've died for your sins. And now you come in faith. There is no other salvation. No one else died for you and then rose from the grave. Three days later, he conquered sin and death. He's alive. He proved he's the son of God. He validated what he did on that cross. And he loves you. That's why he went to the cross. For the joy that was set before him, the joy is you. To know him, to be forgiven. To have the promise of heaven, to be a part of the family of God, to be with him for all eternity. And all you do and have to do is come in faith. To quit going the direction you're going, trying to save yourself, or thinking if you can be good enough, because none of us are good enough. Jesus came to make provision for you to come and surrender your life and your heart to him and to come in faith in who he is, the son of God, and what he did for you and died for your sins. And he's alive. We believe in a risen Savior to come to the good news of the gospel and to ask Jesus into your life and into your heart as Lord and Savior. And he promises that he will come and forgive you. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. And if you've never done that, I want to give you the opportunity right now to do that, just while we got a few minutes. That you come and you... You can pray, Jesus, I come to you. And I know that I have sinned. I've missed the mark. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me and you rose again in your life, speaking to my heart, knocking on the door of my heart. And I open up my heart to you and I come in faith. I believe that you died for me that you're the Son of God, and I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. And I want to know you, to learn to walk with you, and to stay close to you, and to serve you all the days of my life. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name. And if anyone by chance, because I know that there's a lot out there in a the coffee shop, if you prayed that prayer, as we conclude the service, come up and I want to pray with you and just encourage you as I'll be up here for a little while. Make your way up front so I can talk with you and bless you. But for all of us, that we would never doubt the love of Jesus Christ for us, how valuable we are to him and beautiful to him, that we would pursue you, Lord, in everything that we do. Not pursue the world, carnality. You did not save us so that we could pursue that which does not bring us joy and peace, only brings us bondage. 
So, Lord, we want to enjoy you with every day of our lives and to come to you, even as we're weary and heavy laden. Those who are tonight feeling that, that they can know they can come to you, even as they leave this place, to continue on with you. As you desire to bring comfort to them, you desire to minister to them. So, Lord, we thank you for tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.